everyone. You're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host Ivan Stegich. In this episode of the podcast, Brian Lucas of True Voice Communications. Brian is a veteran strategic communicator, storyteller, author, and coach. He's a graduate of Princeton and Northwestern, and I'm very lucky to be able to call him my good friend. I'm excited to be talking with him today. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be speaking with you as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a nice conversation, I think. <laughs> now, I had uh, asked you to prepare a joke, and I can't remember what, <laughs> I can't remember what you decided, yes or no. I think I had told you I prefer not to, but it, but when pressed, I have one joke that I can ever remember. Okay, what is it? Uh, and it used to entertain my kids when they were very tiny, and it doesn't anymore. <laughs> it's a two-parter. Okay. The first is, uh, how do you catch a unique bird? How? Unique up on it. <laughs> that That didn't get the reaction I wanted. The second part is, how do you catch a tame bird? A tame bird? You, I I don't know. The tame way. Uh, Brian. (laughs) I can tell why your kids are not (laughs) laughing at that anymore. (laughs) It it really worked when they were, when they were young. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I gotta, I gotta update my shtick a little bit. Just a little bit. (laughs) So we've known each other since our kids were young and we're in children's house together. And I had just started 10-7 and you were doing PR at Best Buy before that whole Amazon thing became a threat. Yep. And And they've now transformed themselves and they're actually doing well again. I wish I could say I had something to do with that. (laughs) But you didn't. Yeah, Best Buy went through some tough times. And now, I mean, I prefer to buy my things at Best Buy than Amazon. Yeah, yeah. I think there's. A, I think that they've done a good job of making themselves relevant again. So it's nice to see a local company doing that. So you grew up in Minneapolis, right? Yes, I did. And it wasn't very long ago that you were born, right? And went to Blake. <laughs> Not very long that I was born, and yes, I went to Blake uh, from seventh grade through high school. Oh, I thought you had been there for um, your whole education. Where did you go before? Nope. I started at public schools. I went to Hale and Field and then uh, and then made the transition in seventh grade. And you played baseball at Blake, right? I played baseball and soccer and basketball. Here you had a killer knuckleball. Uh, I, <laughs> I I had a, I threw it a lot in batting practice, but I never really had the guts to throw it in a game. Actually, were you worried it would hurt someone, or what was the? I would I was worried it was going to be deposited into the left field bleachers uh. pretty easily. <laughs> so, what do you think a defining moment at going to the Blake School was for you? Um, I think that the, a couple of things. One was. Um, an appreciation for how the, the, the idea of learning and how just learning how to be a learner is so important. And so I, you know, I, I distinctly remember being in a class once when uh, 
there were, it was a, a history class, and one of the, my um, one of the students was complaining about you know how why are we ever going to need to know this later in life, and the teacher d- dropped the schedule for the day and he said let's talk about that mm. and we had a discussion about what why do we need to study our history and I remember that I had been. Um, in Germany this summer before with my family and we had gone to Dachau and we'd seen the concentration camp and I raised my hand and I talked about how the message at when you enter the concentration camp says uh, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it and so I mentioned that to the teacher and he came over and shook my hand and he said that is exactly why we need to do this wow. and I remember just being um, struck because I had never really put it together myself. I'd always considered classes to be, you know, I I have to learn this because I need to know it for the test, because I need to, you know, get get a good grade grade. or whatever else. And that changed my perspective a little bit where I was like, you know, there is a reason why I'm learning to learn and learning to ask good questions and learning to question things. And uh, that stuck with me a lot, I would say. Yeah, you said there were two things. A, a second one was about passion, and I remember one of my favorite teachers, and he was also a baseball coach for me. Uh, every student at Blake is supposed to give a senior speech, mm. and my senior year, this teacher, Mr. Anderson, uh, asked if he could give a speech, and he got up and he gave a speech. And the entire speech was about why he loves teaching mm. and why that's his passion. And I remember, I was blown away by it. And I remember thinking that finding a calling and finding something that you can really put your heart and soul into uh, is really inspiring. And so that, that speech stuck with me all these years. Is that unusual for a teacher to give a speech at um, at that event or throughout the year, right? Because the senior speeches are throughout the year, I think. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember another teacher doing that. I don't. Uh, that was the only one that I remembered, and, I, and I, I remember that he asked if he could do it, and they gave him time. So it it, it was pretty unique in my mind. Well, how fun that um, you would be around when that happened and that that would be such a defining moment that's that's great yeah and I, i've seen him since and e- even today i think he gets tired of me mentioning it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bring it up to him again i'm like you remember that speech you gave it it really changed my life <laughs> honestly it made an impression on me that stuck with me so that's awesome. That's really awesome. You've often talked about being driven to find and tell great stories, and I've seen you, um, you know, do do work with uh, Best Buy and with Children's, and I've seen you start your own business now. And you, and we'll get to talking about this later, I'm sure. But um, you know, you're a journalist and you've been a reporter before. Why do you think you're driven by telling good stories, great stories? Uh. I think it's because the great story, first of all, it's fun to tell a great story. And second of all, it sticks with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, when I was young in high school, I I wrote for this student newspaper. Um, I was editor of the paper and I got to write a column. And I remember having that voice was really important to me. And that made me start to think about being a journalist. And then one day I went and I shadowed um, 
a reporter named Dave Nimmer, who used to be a reporter at WCCO Television. I went and shouted him for a day. And it was on the anniversary, some anniversary of Watergate. And we went and interviewed a guy who was one of the first connections to the president in Watergate. He's, he lives, lived in Minnesota. And I remember sitting with, with this reporter, Dave Nimmer, um, beforehand talking to him about what he wanted to accomplish with that interview and why that was such an important story to tell. And then being able to watch him go in and talk to this guy who was very nervous about doing this interview, but um, you know, it, it was fascinating. And it, again, it stuck with me. And I think that's what I love about storytelling is that if you, you have a good story, it stays with you. And you might find yourself telling that story years later uh, to another person uh, because there's a reason that it resonates with you. Uh, and I think for every job I've had, every place I have uh, spent my time, I like finding those stories that will stick with you and that you might remember you know, days later, weeks later, or years later and, and tell somebody else because there's, there's something unifying about that. So the idea that um, you wanted to tell stories, did you realize that right around high school and then... Um, went into college knowing that? Because I know you, you went to Princeton, Princeton and you got a bachelor's degree in politics, right? That's not, that's not journalism. That's not storytelling. Yeah, I, the reason I did politics is because I, I knew that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, but from the people that I spoke to who were journalists, they said you, that going into something like history or politics would give you a grounding for uh, perspective on the mm. stories that you were going to tell as a journalist. And so I felt like, you know, I could learn. I knew I, I knew I could write. I figured I could learn to write in a journalistic style and learn how to tell stories that way. But I wanted to have a grounding so that I could have some perspective for the stories that I was telling. And that's why I went to, that's why I made it in politics. And then I did, um, journalistic things on the side. I worked for a radio show in, in college that we did a half-hour radio interview show that was syndicated around the country. Oh. So I, I got to go in and I got to, we, we traveled to D.C. or to New York and I got to interview people like Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings and do these half-hour interview shows. And that's sort of how I got my journalism fix in college. And I got the politics, the politics was more sort of to make sure that I had a grounding in the world that I could take into that job. And when you had that show, um, it was a serious show, so you didn't have like a DJ name, did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I had no DJ name. It was not, uh, uh, not quite that kind of show. It was, it was more, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a public affairs show back when radio stations were required to air public affairs programming. Um, and so when I started, we had a station list of about 450 stations around the country that would air our show. Wow. So my parents got to actually listen to the show. And then uh, that was about the time that Reagan deregulated the broadcasting industry. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you did not have a public affairs requirement anymore. And our station list went from 450 to about 125 in a matter of months. So, yeah, all these stations that had to air 
public affairs programming, as soon as they didn't have to anymore, they stopped doing it. They dropped it. Wow. So the plan was always to go into journalism, but after you were done with your bachelor's, I know you worked at NPR. So you kind of postponed going on further and getting that master's degree, and you were at NPR first. Yes, yeah. At first I interned at CNN in D.C., and uh, right during the Persian Gulf War, actually. And uh, my mentor there said if I really wanted to get good experience in journalism, I should go to a smaller market. And he said try radio because that's where you really learn how to tell a story. And so that's why I did that. And then you decided, okay, I'm going to get my master's degree. Um, and you became a reporter for a station in Wisconsin after going to Northwestern. Yeah. I was in La Crosse, Wisconsin, working for the CBS station there. Now I've looked at your website as I often do. And I saw a screen grab of your first live shot and I couldn't find the actual video anywhere because I was interested to hear how you actually did that first live shot. And there's a great story around that, right? Yeah, I think that the the reason I put that, that screen grab on there was to illustrate this idea of um, learning how to trust yourself and trust your instincts. When I started out as a reporter, I, I had this desire to be perfect. I wanted mm. to... Um, to tell stories in a creative way, in a compelling way. And when I had the chance to actually you know, record and write and do something that was put together, that's when I could spend some time wordsmithing it. But a lot of reporting now is live shots. And the, the fact is you, you can't really write a live shot. You shouldn't really write a live shot. Um, and I ran into this issue early on where I would pre-write exactly what I wanted to say so that it could be clever and I could walk and talk and do something uh, more than just kind of talking off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. And that's a recipe for disaster when you're doing a live shot because as soon as you start talking and you tried to memorize something, uh, as soon as you make a mistake, your mind goes blank. And so... That first live shot, you can see the fear in my eyes. That's why I posted this, this screen grab. <laughs> I, I look like a deer in the headlights. Um, and I would trip myself up all the time because I was searching for the perfect way to say something mm. rather than just saying what I already knew. And so finally I got to the point where I would trust myself a little bit more to the point where I, you know, I know what I'm talking about. I know what the story is. I can just have a conversation with the anchor and tell the story. And if and even if every word isn't perfect, that's okay. And so that that's something that I use today when I'm coaching people about how to do media interviews, how to do a job interview, how to do a college interview, things like that. Uh, it's you know prepare, but don't feel like you need to memorize what you're preparing because at the end of the day, you want to come across as yourself, mm -hmm. and you want to be able to tell these stories in a way that is authentic to the way that you would just naturally tell the story. I I absolutely love the title of the blog post where that screen grab is. It's don't let perfection become the enemy of good. And it's just trust yourself, trust that you know the basics, and then have a conversation about it. I, I love that idea. Yeah, and it, it's freeing in a way because it's a lot of pressure to try to remember something or to be worried about... You know, I think there are a lot of analogies for that. Even in, in sports, like when I played 
basketball, right? I wasn't the greatest basketball player in the world, but I enjoyed it. But in basketball, when you if you make a mistake, it's very obvious. Mm. You make a turnover, you give up your your the person you're defending gets a layup, that kind of thing. And sometimes you get so nervous about making a mistake that you don't take any chances. You don't take a shot when it's an open shot. You don't you, you don't, don't try to make a pat. You don't you don't risk it, and the, and then you're not actually um, probably doing what you should be doing out there. So I think that there are a lot of analogies for that at a lot of places where that where that concept um, plays itself out. Do you think you have to be a good storyteller to be a good reporter? Uh, I think you should be. I think that I think that a journalist. At his, at his or her heart should be a storyteller. Mm. I think that more and more these days there are journalists that don't really uh, practice storytelling as much as maybe they should have. So, you know, in this day of live shots, a lot of it is, um, is not maybe a well-crafted story like it used to be. But I think that the best journalists have to be good storytellers. That's how you make something resonate. That's how you, that's how you get to the heart of what it is that you're trying to, to convey. And there are a lot of good ones out there. Yeah, it seems that um, the 24-hour news cycle is almost detrimental to storytelling because you don't have that... Uh, that amount of preparation that you need to think about and be able to actually craft a story. Absolutely. And, and actually, I believe that I was, I had a front row seat to the moment when journalism took a turn for the wrong direction. But when was that? It was when I was interning at CNN right after college. And I started, I was supposed to be working in the White House office helping coordinate White House coverage. And then the Persian Gulf War, the first Persian Gulf War, broke out. That was in the 90s, right? That was 90, That was in 1991. Yes. okay. And so rather than doing what I was supposed to do, I, I got put into this room with the four supervising producers uh, in four different desks around the room. And I was just answering phone calls and directing the reporters to the different supervising producers. And it was very hectic, and the reporters, a lot of them yelled at me because I didn't know who they were when they called. But I just started. <laughs> it's like, it was, it was kind of a miserable um, job. But <laughs> I, got to, I got to hear the, the debate going on in the room. And two of the supervising producers um, had the opinion that we have invested so much money around the world so that we can go live immediately to any reporter, wherever they are in the world, and that's what we're going to do. So if, if there's a siren that goes off, we're going to cut live to that producer so we can be there, that reporter, so that we can be the first to get on the air with whatever the news is. And then the other two supervising producers said, it's great that we can go live whenever we want to any of these reporters, but we can't go live to them before they've had a chance to figure out what's going on. We should, if there's a siren that goes off, we should let the reporter figure out what's going on and what the news is, and then we'll cut to them live. And there was really uh, spirited debate about that. They were, there was a lot of yelling in the room about hmm. that. And the two that wanted to go live immediately won. And if, and if you remember, that's the war where we had 
reporters frantically trying to put on their gas masks because they, yeah. they, the siren was going off. And, you know, I heard that, that gas may have been released and, you know, this and that. And the reporters had no idea what was really going on. They just were in the moment. Right. And in a way, that's good theater, but it's not reporting. And so I, I watched as the two reporters, the two uh, producers that I agreed with got kind of overrun and the rest of that uh, coverage was more sort of immediate and uh, not what we think of when we think of kind of journalistic reporting. Yeah, there's a, I, I think we could devote an hour to talking about media and journalism and, <laughs> and where we're at with that today. It is. I, I wanted to ask what the most memorable report you ever filed was. So there, uh, the most memorable one in terms of amusing was I got sent uh, probably two hours away to a farm where a, a, a couple had started their own business um, selling dried flowers that they were drawing smiley faces on, and they thought that they had a multi-million dollar business. And, <laughs> and and I got to go interview them about that. That was that wasn't that was more amusing. And my wife loves that story. Uh, the one that stuck with me probably was a series that I did uh, about a healthy families program that was aimed at helping at-risk uh, young parents learn how to be parents and to, to break the cycle of violence mm. uh, and child abuse. And I got to profile three different families who were going through this program and show how, you know, a, a relatively meager investment of, you know, time into a a caseworker uh, can prevent abuse and the cycle of abuse and all of these other issues that come around, come along with that. And I just found it to be really inspiring to talk to these young parents and hear them talk about the impact that this program made on their lives. And that, that one stuck with me for a long time. Was that one of the last um, reports you filed while you were in Wisconsin? That was actually the one of the first... Uh, that was the first series I ever did. Really, it was in the first few months that I was there. Yeah, because I really wanted to do a series, a series report, and now nobody does series reports anymore because they, the research shows that that people don't like them uh, mm. because it feels incomplete. But back then, you could do so. I did a four-part series, so one part aired each night for four nights in a row. Oh, yeah. And then you left journalism and broadcasting, and you moved to PR, and I believe your newsroom, uh-oh, um, your newsroom regarded PR as the dark side. Why, why was that? It's a, it's a really common uh, phrase that people use, and I think it's because when you work with some PR people, they engage in what is commonly called spin, and so they're trying to sell you on a story that they probably know and you definitely know is not real news. And so um, in that way, you know, they jokingly referred, you know, when I, when I said I was moving to a PR company, they, they all said I was moving to the dark side. I, I still don't buy into that. I think that if you're telling legitimate stories and you're telling authentic stories, uh, it's all storytelling. And I, I, I don't advise clients to spin. I don't think that you should ever um, 
try to turn a story into something that it's not or try to be inauthentic. And I think if you're engaging in something that's authentic, uh, you, it's something you should be proud of. So you, so you ended up at an agency, a PR agency, and you're, um, you've spent a large number of years in PR since then and since moving home, right? So you've been at Best Buy, you've been at Children's Minnesota, and most recently you've been at the University of Minnesota. Um, how has your work in PR with all of the experience you've had in the last 10 to 15 years, how's that compared to being a reporter and a journalist? I think that that the more that I got into the PR and the strategic communications side, the more that I drew on what I think made me a good journalist, which is curiosity, which is asking good questions, uh, and trying to find stories that make it that actually impact people's lives, and so in that way it translates really well. I think that um, you know there are some things that I had to get used to, like as a journalist, especially a television journalist, I had a deadline every day, mm -hmm. and at the end of the day, I could look at the story and I could say, oh, job well done, or boy, that didn't turn out the way that I liked. And then when I moved into communications work, uh, job is never really done. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there are deadlines and things like that, but, but at the end of the day, you you don't always have something you can look back on and say, wow, I accomplished that today, or, I, or that turned out well, or that didn't turn out well. So that, um, it's a different mentality that I had to get used to, but I think you, know, you slowly make that, that adjustment. Do you miss being a reporter? Not most of the time. I, it's a tough lifestyle. Um, I feel like you know, when I left, I got out of it for the right reasons. It was, it, it, the hours were really long. Um, you know, you could do a, work all day on a story, and then I, there, this happened to me. I was, worked all day on a story, filed it, felt pretty good about it. I was just leaving the station to go home for the night, and the scanners went off, and there was an armed robbery at a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh, wow. And my news director stopped me and said, take the live truck, we need you to go live at 10 o'clock with the story. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So I, you know, so you, you get the live truck and you go out there and you sit outside Kentucky Fried Chicken all night waiting to, for somebody to tell you something about this armed robbery. Um, and it was tough. And, you know, you're also living places that you, you don't get to choose where you live because it, basically you live wherever you get the job. Uh, the job security is tight, uh, it is tough, and... It's just kind of a, a difficult lifestyle. I, I, some of my friends that I went to grad school with, they're still doing it, and they do a great job, and I'm you know, proud to see them still doing it, but um, it just wasn't the right lifestyle for me in terms of wanting to put down roots and have a family and that kind of thing. I'm glad you decided to put down roots in Minnesota and that our kids ended up going to the same school because um, it's, been, it's been great knowing you thus far. <laughs> We're we're, we're going to continue knowing each other. Yes, we right? are. That, we that are. was almost like a <laughs> that was almost dismissive. No, like no. it's been great. It's been great knowing you. Yeah. No, we continue. We continue. Okay, this there is we just go. The That's good. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, with all your experience in PR, this year you started your own firm, True Voice Communications, and I I just love the description you have on your website, telling authentic stories to achieve your goals. 
Why a focus on authentic? Uh, I think if something's not authentic, it's easy to tell. And it's, and it's also, um, if you're not comfortable as an organization telling an authentic story, you need to step back and pr try to figure out what is your authentic story that you are comfortable and proud to tell. So to me, that it all starts with authenticity. And whether you're... Uh, you know, a nonprofit trying to trying to figure out how to attract donors or how to you know reach out to more people to make a difference with whatever your mission is, or if you're, you know, going for a job interview and you're trying to present yourself in a way that that will get the job. Well, if you don't present yourself authentically, uh, you're not giving yourself the right kind of chance to get the job that's right for you. If you present yourself inauthentically and you get the job, maybe they're hiring somebody that you're not. Mm. And if and if you present yourself uh, 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 inauthentically and you don't get the job, maybe you shouldn't have. Maybe that wasn't the right place for you. So I think that it's really important to be comfortable with who you are, comfortable with what your story is, and that's the that's the best kind of story to tell and the one that you can really feel good about. So PR is really about communications, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think that more and more it's about finding your own stories and telling your own stories and, you know, still working, you know, putting things together that maybe news media might like. But more and more it's about telling your own stories through your own channels and hopefully telling them uh, in an authentic and compelling way. Now, your firm is focused on a few core things. When I heard you were starting a firm, I was just elated to hear that you'd be... Um, you know, in the world of small business and directing your own business. Can you tell me what you focus on at True Voice? Sure. We, uh, there are three buckets that we work on. One is traditional sort of strategic communications, consulting, um, hoping, hopefully working with nonprofits or startups or that kind of thing. And what is your organization? What do you want to be? And what do you want to be known for? Who's your audience and how are you reaching out to that audience? Are you doing it in the, in the best way? So that's the first bucket. The second bucket is storytelling, and that is more um, content creation, writing, uh, video production. Uh, I helped somebody with a podcast that they were starting, um, that kind of thing. So actual content creation. And then the third part is coaching, and that could be media training for somebody who wants to get comfortable doing interviews or uh, I did a job interview training or um, I also am working with students who want to learn how to do college interviews or learn how to do an interview for a job, that kind of thing. Th those things don't come naturally. And so if I can work with people to help them learn how to be comfortable talking about themselves, uh, I find that work really rewarding. You've told me before that you have considered being a teacher, so you must love working with college students and kids to help them with their interviews. I do. I love it. I, you know, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, uh, teaching is something that I've never done, but I think I would love. And I actually went and shadowed a teacher for a little bit, and and it was so much fun. This is my way of trying to incorporate a little bit of that into my life. Mm. I, I do a lot of alumni interviews uh, for uh, Princeton, people who have applied to Princeton. I interview students, and I love doing it. They're, it's inspiring. Mm. And, uh, and sometimes the kids are great at talking about themselves. Sometimes you have to kind of 
tease it out of them a little bit. Um, but I always walk away inspired. And so being able to help kids learn how to tell their story uh, in a way that they're comfortable with uh, and give some perspective on who they are is, is really rewarding. Um, I'm also trying to work on a way to set up a nonprofit so that for every student that I coach that can pay for it, I want to coach a kid that can't pay for it. Uh, and I think that would be really rewarding in that way, too. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Do you have an idea about what the, uh, the kind of client is that you're looking for? Really, I'm focused on people that, and this is going to sound sort of uh, corny, but I really want to work, work with people who are trying to make a difference in the world. Mm. I want to um, support nonprofits. I want to support um, social entrepreneurs, that kind of thing. I think that that I could have easily gone and you know continued down a path of working for big organizations and that kind of thing, but if I'm going to go out on my own and do something, I want to make it meaningful. And so I want to find organizations and people who are just who are good people who are have a vision that's going to do something good in the community. And if I can help them elevate their game and take it to the next level and and succeed in that way, that would feel really good. Well, if there are any listeners out there that are uh, listening to the podcast and are nonprofits, please reach out to Brian. All his details will be in the transcript, and then we'll provide that at the end. I, I wish you the best of luck with that. I, I think any nonprofit that is um, lucky enough to work with you would go very far. We, we've talked a whole lot about storytelling, your love for it, your career in journalism and PR, and now your new firm. But you've also written a book, a book called Here Comes the Sun, and it's about your family's journey through cancer. Uh, spoiler alert, there's a happy <laughs> ending. <laughs> That's a good spoiler, though. It's a good spoiler. Uh, why did you write the book? Uh, I wrote the book because I think when you go through something like that and and just for background, my, my wife was diagnosed with leukemia, and it was a late-stage leukemia, and she had to have a bone marrow transplant. And it was hard. I mean, we, we, we had to learn a lot. We had to learn it quickly. She was in the late stages of her cancer when she was diagnosed, and it, it was extremely stressful. Our, our daughters were three years old and 10 months old at the time mm. of the diagnosis. And uh, so I think when you go through something like that, and you get to the other side, there's a experience there that can be helpful to some people. And I felt like if I could share our story in a way that was accurate and honest, but also hopeful and maybe helpful, um, that it seemed like something that I, that I would feel good about sharing. And so I went back and just looked at all of the notes that I took and the diary that I kept while Betsy was in the hospital and the Caring Bridge updates that we did. And I just compiled it all together and tried to give it some sort of a, a narrative, uh, sort of a, an actual structure and put it together. And, and it was a really, it was sort of a therapeutic experience mm. for myself to get it out there. And then I would say, um, 
I've gotten really nice notes from people who have said it is, it's helped them as well. And so in that way, it's been really gratifying to, to do that. How did you know you were going to write the book? I mean, it, it must have been, a, was it, a, I guess, was it a hard decision to make to write the book? It's a long investment of time, isn't it? Yeah, well, a lot of it I wrote sort of in the moment, and that was honestly therapy for myself. Mm. I mean, it was, you know, when I was in the hospital with Betsy, I, I stayed with her through the transplant and and, uh, and and for a lot of the second, she had two long hospital stays. And so I kept the diary for that purpose. I think that I didn't really think about turning it into a book until... Um, we had a chance to meet Betsy's bone marrow donor, and he was a 19-year-old man from Germany, and, and he was flown here for an event for Be The Match. And we got to know him and meet his fiance. and then when they left, they asked if we wanted to go to their wedding. Mm. And we said, well, we'd be honored to go to your wedding. And they left, and they sent us an invitation, and by total coincidence their wedding date was Betsy and my 10th anniversary of our wedding so the serendipity of that and just the the I don't know there was something about that that just made me think this is a story that needs to be told and it's about it's it's about generosity it's about hope it's about uh you know some difficult things and difficult moments that we went through but in the end, I always say it's just a love story. It's a love story between my wife and me and the community that we live in and this donor in Germany and all of these things that came together to, to preserve our family and to preserve uh, sort of the life that we get to live now. It's a wonderful story, and I'm glad you guys came out on the other end, and I'm glad to know you and to know Betsy, and um, I'm glad there was a happy ending. Yeah, well, and the feeling is mutual. We, you know, I, we really value uh, you and Susie and, and that friendship as well. So we feel very lucky. Appreciate that. Are you ever going to write another book? Uh, I might. I, I actually, uh, I really want to write screenplays. And so I wrote my first screenplay a little while ago. Uh, actually, right as I was starting True Voice, I had some time and I thought I've had a screenplay in my mind forever. And so I finally wrote my first screenplay and I really enjoyed doing it. So I'm going to try writing some screenplays first. And then if another book uh, happens to occur to me, uh, I really enjoyed that process as well. So you never know. Okay. Well, I haven't seen your screenplay yet. You do keep promising <laughs> to send it over to me, and uh, it, it must have been going into spam or something else is going on because I haven't seen it in my email yet. I, I'm just going to call you and do a dramatic reading of it sometime, <laughs> if that's okay. Yeah, that would. I be need fun. to work on my. I need to work on my acting chops first, but you know. <laughs> uh, well, I'm looking forward to seeing it in uh, print or on the big screen at some point. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We'll do our best to make that happen. <laughs> well, before we close, um, I, I would love to ask you if you have any book that you recommend I read. That's a great question. Um, there are two that pop into my mind. One that I th that sticks with me and I keep going back to is uh, the Thomas Friedman book, uh, Thank You for Being Late. I don't know if you've read that or no, not. No, I but... haven't. 
I, th I thought it was really insightful, and there are some things in there that I think particularly you and your line of work and sort of the, it's all about the acceleration of our lives and the acceleration that technology is sort of bringing into our lives. Mm. And so the, the title is basically from he, when he meets someone for coffee and they're late and they come in and they apologize to him and they say, I'm so sorry I'm late. And he's, and he's like, thank you for being late because that's the only time that I get unstructured time. <laughs> you know, I get, to, I get to sit here and wait for you and I get to relax and I get to just think. And th their lives are going so fast it now that, that it's hard to it's hard to keep it under control. So, it's I think it's fascinating. I think that you'd like it. Uh, and the second one is not going to surprise you. It's Dessa's new book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I haven't asked you about that at all. And perhaps we should spend a few minutes talking about that. First, tell me about the book. What what is Dessa's new book? Uh, well, she has a book called My Own Devices, and it's about it's a memoir of her time, uh, you know, on the road with Doomtree and and becoming an, the artist that she is today. And also, it's it's got a side to it that is sort of science based and and uh, trying to understand feelings and love and heartbreak and things like that. And it's it's. If you know anything about Dessa and you've listened to her, her music, it's very inspiring and it's uh, it's a great story. And uh, I think it gives you some insight about what it's like to be a musician, what it's like to be on the road. But it's also, it, it raises a lot of interesting sort of uh, philosophical questions as well. I, I'm going to add that to my Kindle reading list. Um, we haven't talked about Dessa and Prince at all. <laughs> how, how could I go this long without mentioning Dessa? And I, I don't Prince? know. It's been over thirty minutes, and neither Dessa nor Prince came up. What is going That's on? That's a record. <laughs> okay, question. First song you ever heard of Prince's? Uh, probably. It would be off of 1999, so it was probably 1999 or Delirious. One of those two are the ones that stick out. Or Little Red Corvette, maybe. So you heard... So what you're saying is you can't remember the first song you've ever heard of Prince's because it was unremarkable. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's because they're, they're, just, they're just classics, and how do you even distinguish? But the funny thing is that I, I was a moderate Prince fan in high school, right? And that was during Purple Rain and everything. Uh, and 1999, Purple Rain. And then when I went to college is when I became obsessed. And it was because I had a couple of roommates who also were Prince fans. Uh, interestingly, not Minnesota guys. One, was, one lives in L.A. and one lives in Atlanta now, but he's from Pittsburgh. And uh, we just kind of fed on each other's passion Fandom. for Prince and and we just went back and explored music that we hadn't heard yet and we were eager to get the new album and I, I remember sprinting to the record store uh, on the day that Love Sexy came out and waiting for them to open the box so that we could get the CD for, fresh off the presses and uh, laughing hilariously at the cover of Love Sexy which is <laughs> one, of, one of the most uh, very Prince-like shocking covers of, of all of his albums. And then going back and just having this 
transformative experience, listening to the album for the first time with my friends who were just as big a fan as I was and reading the lyrics along with every song as we, as we listened to it. And, and I'll never forget uh, that experience, you know. And then w we went and saw him in concert a number of times and that kind of thing. I mean, it just kind of fed on it there. So my, my love of Prince actually was bred and, and grew f away from Minneapolis uh, and, you know, obviously continues to grow now that I'm back. Uh, you, s you refer to yourself as obsessed in College of Autumn. Would you say you are more obsessed or less obsessed now? Uh, with Prince, yes. I, I would say l less obsessed because I mean, uh, you know, obviously your life doesn't revolve around going to the record store anymore. <laughs> 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 I mean, honestly, I would plan my day around New Release Tuesdays in college <laughs> and, uh, and go out there. Um, so I would say that the obsession has declined. I obviously was really upset when he died, and I my phone just blew up from all my friends like. Can you believe it? Did you hear it? Uh, and it's still shocking to me that that he's not around and creating still. Um, but uh, you know, I think that we'll get a lot of music still. And and I, I still, you know, I, it's it's not obsession, but I, but my my passion for him and his music has not waned. What is it about him that you love? Well, I think that it's the the creativity and the uniqueness and the willingness to sort of cross boundaries and genres, and also the fact that that he did it all. He played the music. He played the instruments. He he uh, he wrote it all. He didn't. It, it, it's sort of a virtuo virtuosity that we don't see very often. Um, to be able to play any one instrument as well as he did is remarkable, but to play all of them as well as he did is, is unbelievable. And then to be able to create so many different sounds and reinvent himself so many different times um, was great. And then the other thing I will say is that after he died, I was gratified to learn about his humanitarian side, which he kept very silent while he was alive. but. So many people came out of the woodwork and said that he supported their cause. He wrote checks to their, to their nonprofits, and he really believed in giving back to the community. And that's gratifying to learn about somebody that you already held in high regard. He was an amazing talent, wasn't he? That was just a virtuoso, as you said. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I've had a lot of fun talking to you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we could just do this all day. I feel like we could, too. <laughs> just call me later, and let's just keep talking. Okay, we'll fine. do that. <laughs> Thanks so much for spending your time with me. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. Brian is online at truevoicecommunications.com, and you can get his book, Here Comes the Sun, from his other website, brianlucasauthor.com. You've been listening to the 107 Podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Till next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>